0: Hundreds of thousands of people tour Garvin Woodland Gardens every year. On a picturesque 210-acre peninsula on the south end of Lake Hamilton, the gardens are named for Verna Cook Garvin. As you'll hear, the donation was arranged prior to her death back in 1993. But by way of a little podcast magic, you're going to hear from Verna Garvin in this week's episode of Hot Springs This Week. Hot Springs This Week. A look at things to do and people to meet in Hot Springs, America's first resort. Hello, welcome. Homnio Gladner, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at HS This Week. You can search for us on Facebook as well. You'll find our episodes on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and on the KZNG website at MyHotSprings.com. So this episode is posted for the last week in August. So we'll talk about things you can do in the coming weeks. And there are lots of of activities coming up but first garvin gardens
1: inch by inch, row by
0: row, gonna make this garden grow all it takes is a rake and a, hoe and a piece of fertile ground as i mentioned a moment ago mrs garvin arranged for the land to be preserved and donated upon her death as you'll hear hers is a truly fascinating story and not one that's all happy but first i have to tell you about susan harper She is the Director of Visitor Services and Volunteers at Garvin Gardens. Susan set about researching the life of Verna Cook Garvin and now actually speaks as Mrs. Garvin in various talks to community groups. She actually dresses up as Mrs. Garvin would have dressed back in her day. And as you're about to hear, you'll think you're hearing from this remarkable woman herself. As her printed introduction says, while Mrs. Garvin died back in 1993, Her spirit lives on. So please meet Susan Harper as Verna Cook Garvin. Mrs. Garvin, let me start with where did you develop your love for wanting to share the outdoors with people?
2: I've always loved gardening, and I particularly love sharing it with folks. I have this 210-acre property that was purchased originally for timber. And when I came out here in 1955, I just fell in love with it and I started my own garden here. And I worked out here for now 43 years till my death in 1993, setting up the garden. And I loved it so much, I wanted people to be able to share my love of the outdoors. So it came to me I needed to leave it to somebody, and the University of Arkansas. Faye Jones School of Design and Architecture seemed like the proper place to do. So we entered an agreement in 1985 and they uh, developed it and opened to the public in 2002. And now hundreds of thousands of people have been able to see my dream and my vision
0: all really though made possible because of the work of yourself as a young woman in the in industry as a ceo and in a business i guess you inherited from your father
2: that's correct um, my father was uh, Arthur Cook not the famous Hot Springs Arthur Cook ice cream man but he developed uh, the Malvern Brick and Tile Company after he was transferred up here from Texas to run the Wisconsin Arkansas Lumber Company that was a large concern with over 3,000 employees in both states and uh, when he passed in 19... and. Uh, He died in 19 and 34, and I took over running the businesses. At that time, I was 24 years old. It took me three years to convince everybody involved, including my mother and my sister, that I could do it and should do it. And I bought them out, and I took over the operations of those industrial businesses. Now, you'll remember back in 1934, women were mainly seen and not heard. They'd only had the right to vote for a few years. So this was a very big undertaking for a young woman.
0: So this ground was what originally intended to harvest trees?
2: That is correct. When daddy bought it in 1920, it had been clear cut 5 years earlier and he purchased this property for the timber to to grow on. It was over 400 acres. When the Lake Hamilton was formed in 1934, about half of his purchase went underwater. But what was left was four and a half miles of shoreline, and I don't have to tell you how much value uh, shoreline is on Lake Hamilton, so it's an extremely valuable piece of property. In fact, I turned down $21.5 million for this property in 1983 because I did not want the development on it. I wanted to preserve it for future generations.
0: Imagine what it would have been worth if you'd waited 10 more years.
2: Quite a bit more, I imagine.
0: (laughs) So what did you, you, when you entered into your agreement with the University of Arkansas for them to turn this into Botanical Garden after your passing, what did you envision they would do?
2: I told them that they would do a woodland garden out here because it's mostly woods, of course, and a shade garden. I stipulated in the agreement that they would never, ever be able to sell this property because I kind of thought that they had their mind that they'd get their hands on this very valuable property. I'd be dead and gone, wouldn't know any better. They'd sell it off and put it in that big endowment of theirs up there. And they said, oh, no, we would never think of doing that. I said, yes, I know. Look on page six of this agreement. It says, you may never, ever sell this property. Another thing you can't do out here is put a commercial enterprise on it. Wouldn't it make a lovely golf course? You've been out. You've seen it. Wouldn't it be pretty for golf? And with a big marina down there, we're on the prime part of the lake. Uh, So I put in there, you can't do that either. You must operate it as a woodland garden. Well, they agreed to that, and I did too. And we signed that uh, agreement in 1985. And when I died in 1993, that trust agreement took over the operation of, of the garden to my specifications.
0: So you said a botanical woodland garden, as you look down now have they fulfilled your wishes have they exceeded your wishes how how do you view it now compared to your thoughts of what you wanted
2: well it's way way better than i ever thought it could be because when i died all we had out here was the pavilion that i had commissioned EFA jones to do for me and a shop building and some trails and some lovely plants that i had put in over 40 years so it wasn't really much but when i look out here now it It just really boggles my mind what all has been done. They've added uh, the chapel complex, which is absolutely uh, beautiful. They've built a a bonsai uh, education center. They put in a $2 million treehouse. Besides the dedication to the plantings that they have done, it way exceeds what I ever thought I could do. And when they plant 150,000 tulips every year, I know I never could have ever Done that yet.
0: As you go about garden Woodland Gardens, you see different garden numbers. I kind of walk us through the different gardens that are here.
2: Well, I, the one that I'm most proud of would be the Japanese garden, the Garden of the Pine Wind. I went out to San Francisco uh, in the ni- early 1960s, and I fell in love with their Asian gardens that they had out there. So I came back and said, this is the place for one. And I started planting Japanese maple trees. I don't know if you noticed when you were going through how large those trees are. They're an understory tree that grow very, very slowly. And we have some huge ones. We have over 50 different varieties of Japanese maples in that garden. And it was recently chosen by the people who design and build Asian gardens as the fifth best Japanese garden in North America. That is a huge, huge honor for us. And, it's, and the other, the top four, would fit inside our garden. Ours is, is the biggest of the top five. So uh, a lot of meticulous detailing in there and design work has gone in and maintenance. Mainly, it's the maintenance that has kept it uh, at the top of its game. That's my favorite uh, garden area. We have an English garden around the uh, Great Lawn, the flowering border, where you, we planted lots and lots of color in a small area like they do in those little English countryside garden homes. Uh, We have the woodland garden where we really didn't plant much because it's so much shade, it's hard for anything to grow out there. So those are the main features through the garden.
3: How many kinds of sweet flowers grow in an English country garden? I'll tell you now of some that I know and those I miss you'll surely pardon Daffodil, heart season flocks, metal sweetened lady smocks, gentine, lupin, and tall hollyhocks, roses, foxgloves, snowdrops, forget-me-nots, in an English country garden. In an English country garden.
0: You have miles of paths. You have streams and waterfalls. And if I understand correctly, n- there's no naturally occurring water despite the streams and waterfalls.
2: That's correct. When I gave this to the university, we didn't have a spring, a creek, not a spot of water on the land. So they're very clever. They've got a huge pump down in Lake Hamilton, of course, with permission from Entergy, We're pumping about a 1,000 gallons a minute out of the lake to run all the water features throughout the gardens and our irrigation system as well. I don't know if you realize, if you're on city water, it takes a lot of money to water your garden. Out here, it just takes a little electricity for us to water a 100 acres of uh, developed uh, garden. And we designed it uh, by we, it wasn't me, but our designers made these beautiful waterfalls and uh, creeks that run through the garden, but they're all fueled by water that comes out of the lake.
0: The gardens are a very popular place for weddings. How many do you have a year on average?
2: I'd say we have about 200. Now, that includes our chapel, our wonderful, beautiful uh, chapel, and our we call no frills weddings that's where you can walk down there to that beautiful full moon bridge and with about 20 people get married on the bridge or in any venue throughout the garden Uh, we also have uh, weddings in our pavilion which is lovely and the treehouse has become popular for photographs and and weddings as
0: well are the weddings your chief revenue source to keep all of this going
2: it would be nice if that were true, but no, it's not. Our uh, holiday lights, I would say, would be the the most uh, revenue-producing that we have because for six weeks from the Saturday before Thanksgiving Day through New Year's Eve, we put out about 5 million lights on 17 acres of the gardens, and we have about 150,000 visitors that come through the garden during that time. We're very busy. And we've put a bunch of improvements in this year to make that, uh, that experience a little less hectic for our visitors as far as parking and ticketing and uh, that sort of thing. We hope we've uh, streamlined that process a little bit.
0: We're having this visit in the middle of August in a small room full of boxes of light. So here in the, the dog days of summer, you're p- literally prepping for Christmas right now.
2: We prep all year long. As soon as we get those lights up out there and our show is ready to go and we open, they start working on next year's show. We have to order our lights in and they, they come in late July, the new lights. We, we reuse as many as we can because when you have five million, you can't afford to replace them every year. But we bring in our new lights and then they have to be prepared before the workers can string them up on the trees. So we're cutting off the tags and we're we're tagging them, which year they were bought, they're color-coded, and then we roll them into little balls and put them back in the box, and then when they, the designer says, okay, you need these blue globe lights on that tree over there, they'll select all of those, and then it's just uh, easy to wrap. They'll start putting them up in the garden the day after Labor Day, because like I said, five million lights takes a while to get them out there, and uh, then they'll be ready to go uh, that week that we open of November the 23rd this year.
0: November 23rd through when?
2: December 31st. We're open on New Year's Eve. It's the place to be.
0: And is there a increase in the charge to see the gardens during the Christmas period, or is it the same as during the year?
2: That's a really good idea, Neil. Thank you. No, it's the same price year-round. It's $15 for adults, $5 for children age 4 through 12, and 3 and under are free.
0: You started as a lover of gardens. Do you have any idea how many different plants have been put in how many different varieties you have here now.
2: No, that uh, that would be, I think, impossible to uh, to determine. Uh, when I passed in 1993, the university sent a team down here, mainly of students, to catalog and count for all the plants that were in the garden, and they were able to count 3,000 azalea plants and um, 100,000 daffodil plants. They couldn't count the dogwoods. There were so many on this property that it was uh, they just could not count it. So that was really the I, in my memory, that was the only time that a plant catalog had been made of what had been out here. Uh, once we got open to the public, there's not any time to count things; it's just time to put them in the ground.
0: But I imagine, with the love of gardens that you had as a young woman, you must have a particular fondness for the designers that work out here, because as you go, you see so many different plants that seem to just blend one to another to another.
2: That's true. It is It is a beautiful design, and it has evolved over the years. Uh, we have early photos of, of, say, the flowering board out there that had a lot of dirt showing with just a little plant here and a little plant there. But the designers had the vision that you put a little plant in here in five years' time, it will fill in and make a beautiful, beautiful display. And much, much thought has gone into everything that has happened out here in the garden. Back in my time, I kept meticulous notes of... Of every single plant that I put in out here, uh, how much water it needed, how much sunlight it needed, if it needed fertilizing, would it grow in the shade, would it grow in the sun? And I had a notebook with every plant that I had, and I kept them in a little wicker basket in the back of my station car. And when I would drive out here, of course, there was nothing here to speak of except the plants. I would refer back to my, my notes on things and uh, make sure that I had planted things. Now, I particularly love to plant things that people told me would never, ever grow in Arkansas. I uh, I have a lot of plants that have, we have an oleander here that it got wiped out one year by extreme cold, but it came back. And that's the, we're at the tip of its uh, tropical range, but it's growing in throughout. Arriving here and I also had a very famous tree, and it, it fell on hard times. It's called the Hen henrii tree, and it's a champion immunopterous tree in Arkansas. You know, the champion tree is the largest, but it's about the size of a stick now. But it's a very rare tree from Burma and uh, South China. And I planted it. And when it would bloom, there'd be an article in the newspaper and people would come from all over the United States to see this rare tree bloom. Well, we had an ice storm and a tree, a pine tree, it was, fell over and knocked half of my immunopterous out. And then years later, it developed some kind of a, a disease and it, it died back, and now it's come back a little bit. It still has the champion plaque on it, but it's, you know, about a one inch diameter tree at this time.
0: You talk about people coming from all over to see certain things that you have. Do you have an idea of how many people come to the gardens every year?
2: I'd say we're about maybe 300,000. You know, once you pass on, you're, you're you're a little spongy on dates and numbers. But I would say that about that. And we used to keep up with the zip codes. And we had people every year from every state and many, many foreign countries that come in. You can be there and be somebody from Australia, somebody from England. It's just really it really does my heart good to see so many people from far and wide enjoying my little garden.
0: So I'm presuming then that that also goes well beyond what you envisioned when you gave the university the land.
2: I had no idea originally when I opened this up for tours. You remember Captain Mark of the Bell of Hot Springs kept working on me to bring people out here, and finally I said, "Okay." Uh, he wanted. He said, "I'll." I'll bring them out and we'll charge $10. You'll get five and I'll get five. Well, that appealed to me. And I said, okay, bring them on out. But I limited it to church groups and garden clubs and later relented and let uh, Kiwanas and Rotary and Civic Clubs come out. But it was very limited who who could come out because I didn't want a lot of people traipsing all over my garden and saying, oh, look, I'm going to dig that up tonight and take it home. So I was really worried about security, uh, but he would bring people out, and I'd have a docent meet every single group and escort them through the gardens while they were here. So, you know, we might have had a couple of thousand people in four or five years come through, and now to it to we might have 5,000 in one night for holiday lights. It, it just, it's amazing to me.
0: Let's go back to your days as a young woman, when you were out here planting, but also running a business. So where did you find the time to come out here and plant while being a young CEO?
2: Well, this was my solace. This is where I came to find peace because I had a very tragic life. Um, I married a man. He looked really good on paper. He was a hero from World War I, owned a business, and uh, seemingly a nice person, but he turned out to be a scoundrel of the worst order. He had me committed to an insane asylum down in Florida. You know, used to a man could just sign his wife into an asylum without a judge or a doctor or anything. And then he took over my businesses and my money. And I, our son already had been born with cystic fibrosis and he was in very poor health. I had to sell my jewelry in order to provide medical care for our son. So you can see that he was not a nice person at all. So I found out he called the board directors together and voted his share and our son's shares against me and took over my business. So I knew how he had done it. I didn't know why he did that, so I hired a detective. And the detective discovered that he was diddling the secretary and hence the need for money. So I marched right down and filed for divorce, which really wasn't done in those days very often either. And my divorce was settled by the Arkansas State Supreme Court. Can you imagine how many times we went to court over our businesses? So fortunately, I had people, managers in place that during this turmoil and uh, other times too could uh, run the businesses. I trusted uh, these men that uh, helped me. In fact, Warren Bankson was one of them. And he was the superintendent of the garden out here. And he ran the brick company. So he helped me in in, in both things. And I, I did love to be out here because it was very peaceful. And, and my son also died from the cystic fibrosis when he was only 16. He was my only child. And I really had to, I had to, fill up every minute of every day. So with my businesses and with the garden, and uh, when when you say I worked in the garden, here's what I did. Me and Warren would come out here, and I would say, Warren, I'd like that plant planted right over there. And he had a little iron stake, and he would drill that down into the dirt, and then he would plant the plant later. And I would come back, and I would say, Warren, I don't like it there. You move it over to here and bless his heart. He put in another little iron stake and moved that plant and never complained. He was a saint of a man.
0: Over how long a period was this tumultuous time in your life?
2: quite a bit of it. I'd say at least 20 years. Uh, my second husband, uh, Patrick Garvin, where I got my name. Now, I fell right in love with him, despite the fact he was a lawyer from New York City. He was down here visiting my uh, office neighbor at the bank building, and I, I we just fell in love, and I married him. He was a great big teddy bear Irish kind of a fella, really, really, really nice. But poor Patrick, um, I had—I was a gourmet cook. I loved to cook, and I would made lobster for supper one night. And poor Patrick choked to death on a piece of that lobster on my dining room table. I lost my beloved husband in such a manner. No, I didn't know the Heimlich because it hadn't been invented right then. And don't forget, he was great big, and I was itty-bitty. I'm not sure I could have saved him, even had I known how. So I lost my second husband, and, and my child was gone. And really, the only thing that saved me was was working out here. And life got better, but it, it did take quite a while.
0: One more question about your earlier days. Because it was so unusual to have a woman CEO, how long did it take for you to develop the respect of the people who answered to you?
2: Well, I think I inherited a lot of that ability from my father. He had taken me to work with him a lot of the time, and I think I think it kind of came naturally to them to look to me as the leader. But I suffered no fools. I really was very, very tough. I was not, uh, you know, a little prim and proper, even though I was a very petite person, and I, I just I had my way, and I that was the, my way of the highway, as they say.
0: Let's come back to the gardens then. One of the things you see are little villages, and, and there's some attention to fairies and things. Walk me through that.
2: Why, any good garden has fairies. I mean, they help the garden. So I've for years had woodland fairies out here. Those are the ones that live by themselves remotely out in the garden. They don't like to be close to other fairies, and they live in, in hollows of trees mainly. Their cousins, the city fairies, came to visit them, and they fell in love with my garden, as they should have, and they decided to build their own little village. So they put in a hotel, the King and Queen Palace, an apartment building with a honeymoon suite on the top, and even the Tooth Fairy has moved in out here. And they, they have bathhouses, they have a chapel, a residential area, playground. They, they really built themselves a nice little city. And it's hard to see the fairies, especially in the daytime. And at night, when we have all those lights out here, they get discomboomalotted trying to get home. And we put in for them a beacon, a a lighthouse that we turn on a real strong light so they can see their way to get back home through all those twinkly lights.
0: You have the treehouse. You have the fairies. So I'm thinking deep down you are looking for a way to pass along your love of gardens to children.
2: Absolutely. That was my intention when I left this to the university was to leave a safe place for children to explore the woods. In my time, I could run wild 10 miles from the house and it was safe. Uh, but in the 80s, 90s, that was not the case for children. But when they come out here, they can see a, a thriving woodland area plus the amenities that we put in to appeal to their sense of adventure and imagination.
3: Sing a song of flowers, flowers all around. Flowers that are growing, growing in the ground. Flowers of every color, they look so pretty too. Red and pink, orange and yellow, blue
2: and purple too.
0: Because you only had one child, is that part of trying to pass that along?
2: Absolutely, I, I did. I did have Audie in mind when I put this aside. Another reason was that I owned, um, I owned a timber company. I had, when I passed on in nineteen ninety three, they say I had more timber and mineral rights than anybody else in the state of Arkansas. Because Daddy bought a lot of timber land and he bought the rights to the timber, and I continued that when I took over the businesses. So we did a lot of clear-cutting, which was the accepted practice back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and decimated a lot of, of, a lot of forest land. So that was primary in my mind, that I wanted to preserve a, a beautiful uh, area of woods for the future generations.
0: With all the different venues here at Garvin to have weddings, part of that surprises me a little bit in that your own unhappiness in wedded life. Walk me through the thought process there.
2: I was dead and gone when they decided to turn that, all this into wedding venues. Um, I'm not sure I would have wanted to get married again after, after my unlucky uh, time with my, my two husbands. But a garden lends itself so beautifully to weddings. And we have made so many memories for people out here in our beautiful garden and uh, chapel area. And it it does please me that people can find happiness and that our gardens are part of it.
0: And then let me wrap up by asking you, when you come back to Garvin Woodland Gardens to visit, is there a particular place that is now the place you go the most, that's your happy place here at Garvin Woodland Gardens?
2: I've always particularly loved Brick Hill. Uh, that brick came from the boiler of my lumber company. When it burned down, it had been manufactured in 1885. And I put in that brick walkway to uh, help with erosion in that area. I was in the brick business, and the brick, the brick at Brick Hill are just exceptional. And I always visit there when I come down to see folks. A couple of other quick
0: questions. How many people work here?
2: It fluctuates, but I'd say we probably have about 50 primary people uh, full-time plus hourly. And seasonally, that grows uh, sometimes quite a bit because we need a lot of help to put 5 million lights out there.
0: So if you had a staff meeting and Mrs. Garvin could talk to the staff, what would the staff meeting be about?
2: It would be about the marvelous job that they have done in maintaining my garden and developing it to the point that it is here now. Everybody that works out here, they don't make a lot of money. They, they really don't because we are a state entity and we're very restricted on what we can pay. They could make a lot more in the private sector. But I think that the people here are here because they're passionate about the garden, and it shows out there. And I would express my appreciation to their dedication to keep the garden alive in my memory.
0: My thanks to Susan Harper. Susan also gave me a personal tour of the gardens prior to our conversation. To say that the design and the execution is beautiful really is an understatement i've lived in arkansas for 35 years and i have to say that i'm now embarrassed that i've never visited before if you haven't been there treat yourself it's worthwhile you can get more information at garvingardens.org, and garvin gardens is one word so now we've reached the use by date of our podcast we're going to talk in a moment about things that will happen between now and the middle of September. But if you're listening to this podcast, say in October or November, all of this will be dated. So at the tone, feel free to just hit on to the next podcast if you'd like. If you're leaving us now, remember you can follow us on HS This Week. We appreciate your comments and thank you so much for listening. And now, on to the week of August 26th, leading up to the Labor Day weekend with, as always, my colleague from 105.9 KLEZ, Jennifer Bailey. Hi, Jennifer.
1: Hi. How Looking are you today? forward to Labor Day. Oh, yeah. Me too. Three-day weekend, or four-day, if you can finagle yourself out of work early on Friday. That's right. Ha-ha.
0: And you are a finagler of the first uh, order.
1: I so am. You have no idea. <laughs> Coming up, both the Hot Springs Blues Festival and Jazz Fest will be happening. They've both been happening for years, and you can enjoy them both together. And let me give you a couple of websites so you can plan your schedule if this sings to you. Clever. See what I did there?
0: You're good. You're
1: good. For jazz... HSJazzSociety.org. For blues, it's SpaCityBlues.org. And SpaCityBlues is all one word. It's worth looking at the programs if you like jazz or blues. The Spa City Blues Society's flagship event is on Saturday, August 31st. Promoters say this year's festival is getting back to its roots so that should be absolutely amazing admission for that is just 15 bucks for seven acts
0: so we're winding down the summer season out of magic springs they have a lot of free concerts as long as you have admission into the park so you either it's a daily admission ticket or your season pass and so the big concert august 31st at magic springs the village people you need, as I said, admission into the park, but this is the one where you have to practice for YMCA. We've done that a couple yeah. of weeks. So.
1: YMCA. You should have it down by now. Seriously. I,
0: I've got it, and, and your singing is getting better from Why, last thank week. thank you. You're, I appreciate it. I've been practicing that, significant that too. Significant improvement. I can yeah. tell. <laughs> I've been working with a voice coach. <laughs>
1: Now into September, the 14th annual Hot Springs Motorcycle Rally is September 5th through 7th. If you live in Hot Springs, you know because you can hear the bikers in town. You can can say you can hear the bikes in town. If you can hear the bikers in town, then maybe they should be a little quieter. Good but no, point. we love hearing the bikes. <laughs> Entertainment this year on the 6th is 38 Special. Yeah, and on the 7th it's country artist Jared Neiman. Tickets and information at the Hot Springs Rally, that's all one word, thehotspringsrally.com. And on Friday of that weekend, just like the first Friday of every month, Gallery Walk is downtown.
0: Speaking of September the 6th and running all the way through October 5th, Emergent Arts is combining with the Japan Foundation and the Sister City Foundation to present a traveling exhibit. It's called... The Master's Compendium from the Perception of Contemporary Comics.
1: Say that three times fast.
0: I didn't say it right the first time. It's the Master's Compendium from the Perspective of Contemporary Comics. My bad. Oh, that makes
1: so much more sense. Yeah. uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Huh? Well, so these are comics or, if you will, graphic novels that are unique to Japan. They include a wide range of comedy, drama, Horror, sci fi, and you get more information about this at emergentarts.org.
1: That sounds amazing. I'll have to check that one out. On Saturday, September 14th, the Hot Springs Future Fund, which donates money to local nonprofits, invites you to their annual Hot Springs Luau. I've been to this, it's a lot of fun. It's 4 to 7 p.m. at the Farmers Market Pavilion. It's actually free, but they'll ask for donations at the door.
0: Shameless self-promotion, 105.9 KLEZ is a co-sponsor of that event. Another month, so another full moon ride at the Northwoods Trail. This time the full moon is on September 14th, so meet as always at the trailhead at 6 p.m. It's free, but it is weather dependent. Bring your own bike, bring your own helmet, and you'll have a great time.
1: And mark your calendar now. I'm so looking forward to this. September 20th through 22nd. It's the fourth annual SpaCon comic and pop culture convention. This has gotten better every single year. It's so much fun. Special guests this year include Michelle Harrison and Barry Bostwick. Yes, he of Rocky Horror Picture fame. Lots of cosplay, lots of seminars, tons of great people watching. (laughs) You'll find lots of information on tickets at spa-con.org. And I hear they're even going to have a special showing of Rocky Horror Picture Show during SpaCon.
0: Absolutely. And we are planning a podcast. Uh, We have an invitation out to Barry Bostwick, and I understand that he's going to join us for a future podcast.
1: I'm so in.
0: Okay, that's Jennifer Bailey. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks. Jennifer and I talk about a lot of things that you can find on the Visit Hot Springs website. The website address is hotsprings.org. As you go across the top of the website on their menu bar, you'll find information on lodging, on events, on restaurants. And there's a calendar that covers a lot of the things we talked about and so much more. You can also go to that website and they will send you a vacation planning guide. Again, the website is hotsprings.org. So, as I mentioned earlier, this podcast is for the week of August 26th, leading up to the Labor Day weekend, the last blast, if you will, out on the water. So much of our recreation is on Lakes Hamilton, Catherine, and on the Ouachita River, and Entergy Hydro manages all of that. So, Kimberly Bogart is here from Entergy, and uh, Kimberly, I guess we start with caution, of course.
3: Yes, there will definitely be a lot more boats out on the the lakes coming up in the coming weekend, and uh, it is a boat at your own risk lake. The shallows are not marked. Uh, but you can uh, use your experience out there, but you could also use apps like Google Maps if you pull them up. Uh, last I've seen, Google Maps shows a five-foot drawdown on the lake, and so it also sort of pinpoints you to show you where you're at. So you'll actually see land where there is less than five foot deep of water.
0: That's really helpful, especially on the far south end of the lake. There's a lot of really shallow areas there.
3: Yeah, down in the uh, down in the basins, the the Forest Loop Basin and White Oak Basin. There is a, uh, I guess I've heard it be termed a uh, surprise shallow spot that you don't expect to see that's located near some homes just off a, just off the, the shoreline there. So that's definitely something you want to take care of if you're not out on the main channel. And then, of course, there's the area there around Kelly Creek on the north side near the second 270 bridge or on the main channel, the first 270 bridge.
0: Is that what they refer to as the sandbar?
3: Yes, that's the sandbar. Uh, that area is about waist deep or so. It tends to be where a lot of people will raft up and tie off and, and hang out out on the sandbar. It's definitely a, a comfortable place to put your feet down on the lake bed. And, um, but Kelly Creek itself there um, to the west of that area, the entrance out to Kelly Creek is really quite shallow um, there off the main channel. But, yeah, that's the sandbar.
0: And I imagine we'll expect that the sheriff's office and the Coast Guard Auxiliary will be out in force.
3: And I bet you the uh, Game and Fish Commission will be as well.
0: Forget about them. All right, what about flows?
3: Flows. So yeah, this is the last planned recreational release and we are going to go ahead and just honor the whole weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday with recreational releases. Again, for those that aren't familiar with it, that's about 3,600 to 4,000 CFS out of Rimmel Dam. That's cubic feet per second. That's a pretty efficient way for us to use the water through the dams to make power. And it's also a pretty good good level for a nice slow float between Rimmel Dam and Malvern. That's going to occur between noon and 5 p.m., so you're going to want to put in by at least 3, but you can put in between noon and 3 to make sure you can make it to Malvern to get yourself out.
0: Because you want to get back in time to get your car because you lock the gates at 10 o'clock at Rumble Dam.
3: We do lock the gates at 10 o'clock and it is only about a 15 minute drive between the takeout point and the put in where you leave your vehicle at. But some people sometimes might want to go home, shower, go eat before they come back. You definitely don't want to show up after 10 p.m. But what you really don't want to do is be caught on the river after seven, because if we shut off generation at five, the river levels drop out rapidly by uh, within at five o'clock, it'll drop out at the dam and then it'll be gone at the takeout point by 7. And it takes you at least three hours if you don't stop to get from point A to point B, which is why I said if you put in at 3, you stop once or twice, you should be off the river by 7 so you don't end up walking.
0: Anything else we need to know about?
3: Well, in the week prior, uh, Monday, through fr- well, Monday through Thursday, because Friday is going to be that, uh, we're planning for a six-hour generation run, but we're not dictating the hours. Right now, we're letting the load need dictate the hours. And as all of us know, it's kind of warm out right now. So fortunately, with it being warm out, the um, the people who dictate when the dams run to produce electricity are picking those hot hours. Well, that's when we want to be on the river anyways. So they've been starting about noon or one. So it's not a guaranteed start at noon or one, but you can kind of pay attention um, to head out on those, but it's about a six hour run. So you get a little extra hour there.
0: So that's a wrap on episode 12. My thanks to Jennifer, to Kimberly, and especially to Susan Harper, who became Mrs. Garvin for our conversation and my thanks to you for listening you can find us on a variety of platforms and i hope you'll share this podcast with your friends i'm always open to your comments and thoughts you can find us on twitter at hs this week you can find us on facebook as well your reviews are especially appreciated hot springs this week is a presentation of kzng news radio right here in america's first resort